we started on this journey, of course, um, I, I kind of launched this series, Walking on Earth as We're Known in Heaven, through the Gospel of Mark. Let's understand how Jesus walked on earth as he was known in heaven, and then went off on a holiday, actually. And so Tom Kimber um, was, was really, um, in the early chapters, very much leading, leading the charge. And I know that he would often ask three questions, uh, questions that he, he offered to a hermeneutics class in the gospel. And the three questions are, and you, you know, what, what does this passage teach us about Jesus? What does this passage teach us about the kingdom of God? And what does this passage teach us about being a disciple? Or what does, it, what does a disciple look like? Um, now, instead of this passage, we'd say this book, the three questions which perhaps will frame tonight's sermon uh, what, what did Mark teach us about Jesus? What is it that Mark wanted us to understand about Jesus? What is it that Mark has taught us about the kingdom of God? And what does Mark tell us about what it means to be a disciple? And they're the three, three questions we're going to look at tonight as we attempt to summarise. Here's two years teaching the gospel of Mark in 30 minutes. Let's go. Um, what does Mark teach us, firstly, about Jesus? And we've touched on that a little bit with the thing about Jesus that sticks with me is dot, dot, dot. One of the things that's inescapable, though, isn't it, is, is his tender love, his tender love. Um, compassion was, was a word that we, we used before. Um, you could think about that that beautiful moment with Jairus, um, Jairus, a, a father who loved his family. His daughter is sick. She's, she's dying. Without any intervention, she's going to die. Jairus comes to, to Jesus, throws off all dignity and, and come on, you've got you've to help me. And Jesus said, I'll come to your house. Now, I, I don't know about you, but put yourself in, in Jairus's shoes. Jesus, the solution to to your daughter's survival is, is journeying towards your house, but suddenly there's a disruption. Suddenly there's an in, some sort of um, obstacle between him getting from where he is at the minute to where he needs to be so he can help your daughter. Imagine how torn Jairus would have been when a, when a woman interrupts, a woman who's suffering from bleeding, interrupts and, and touches the cloak of Jesus. That's all she was going to do as he was passing by, just touch the cloak and, and she receives healing, but Jesus stops and, and he enters, engages with that moment. Now you're Jairus and where does Jesus have to be? He's got to be at your home where, where healing will come to your daughter. What is he doing right now? He's a woman's been healed, fantastic, but now he's turning it into a teaching moment. But, but why? But why? And uh, I believe when Tom was preaching this message, he was here in the, in the morning and he invited Alex Marriott to, to come up and to, and to act out the surprise on Jairus's face in, in that moment. Um, we see the compassion of Jesus. And yet, of course, Jesus is enough for everyone. Yes, he's able to answer the call of Jairus. He's able to be there for the woman in need. He's actually, he, nobody is lost from his sight. And I wonder if that has occurred to you too at some point. We have just been working through, through this series, working through the gospel, and suddenly you've realized God's got something to say to me tonight. He doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't miss a person. He's got something for everybody. 
He sees you. He knows about you. And he has compassion upon you. Chapter 10 is perhaps, perhaps one of the chapters we see this most evidently with Mark. It's always action, action, action. Things are happening in chapter 10. Firstly, the disciples are trying to protect the, the busy and important Jesus from the little children. And Jesus says, no, whoa, 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 whoa. Let the little children come to me. And then he, he puts one, and I picture it like this. He puts one up on his lap and he, and he points out, you know, unless you receive the kingdom of God like this little child, then you, you cannot actually enter it, which was a problem for, as we move on through chapter 10, the, the rich man. Here's a, here's a rich man, a, a devout Jew who has in, in every way ticked all of the boxes. He knows he's lived a good life. He knows he's fulfilled the commandments. And, and so he approaches Jesus with this, this one question that keeps him awake at night. There's something missing in my life. What must I do to receive eternal life? I tick all of the boxes, but ah, I'm not sure this one is ticked. And Jesus, and only Mark, only Mark writes this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. What sort of a look must that have been? Jesus looked at him and loved him. We have the children in chapter 10. We have the rich man in, in chapter 10. And then we have blind Bartimaeus. And um, most of us are blessed with, with good eyesight. It's difficult to understand the repercussions of such a disability. But Bartimaeus, he can't even see Jesus. He just hears from the crowd what is going on. And he calls out to him and, and Jesus not missing anyone, says, call him, tell him to come to me. And he does, and Jesus says, what can I do for you? And Bartimaeus is, is healed in, in that moment. So we see the tender love of Jesus. We see his compassion played out again and again and again, chapter 10 being a specific chapter in which it is so, um, so vivid. But ultimately, I think the thing that Mark wants to leave us with, the thing we can't avoid, we will see Jesus in action, Jesus doing all, all manner of miracles and so forth, but the thing that you, you cannot turn over the last page and miss is this, it's the identity, it's who Jesus is. Mark starts telling us about that in chapter 1. We have the baptism of Jesus and in response, God his father makes this declaration over him, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 11. Um, it's not enough, though, just for God to declare this over Jesus. Mark pushes us to all answer this question. When in chapter 8, Jesus said, okay, <clears throat> I understand who the crowds say I am, but who do you say I am? It's as if Mark pointedly is asking us that question. You can't read this account. Excuse me. I've been struggling with my throat all week, and I had to do this this morning too, Bible one hand, glass of water in the other, but we'll, we'll get through this. Um, you cannot read through this account and not answer that question. Who do you say I am? Peter, of course, declares that, that Jesus is, is the Christ. One chapter over to Transfiguration in chapter 9, 
Um, we hear the words of God the Father spoken over Jesus again, except in this, on this occasion, he's not speaking it to Jesus, you are my son. He's speaking it to the disciples, this is my son. This is my son. And then I like the little, little words there because Peter had been babbling about building some shelters and all sorts of things, and God says, listen to him. This is my son, listen to him, which is a lovely little note for for Peter there at the Transfiguration. In chapter 2, going backwards again, the Pharisees are, are asking Jesus, who has just spoken over a paralytic, he's just spoken over him the words, your sins are forgiven, and they ask the question, who can forgive sins but, but God alone? And Jesus says, well, so that you, are, you understand that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he then tells the paralyzed man, get up and, and walk. He's leaving no doubt as to who he is. So then we get to chapter 15 and two things happen. Bang, bang, right together. In the one instance, just after Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to the bottom. There is now no barrier into the holy of holies, the very, very presence of God, there's no barrier for any person to enter. And who's the, pers the first person that is able to, to declare who Jesus is in that moment? Bang, bang. It's a Roman centurion, the one who just oversaw the crucifixion of Christ. It's he, a Gentile, who declares or makes the declaration, surely this was the Son of God. And, and that is Mark finishing off in one sense, his account of who Jesus truly is. He wants to leave us absolutely certain that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. What did Mark want to teach us about Jesus? Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And you cannot read this gospel and escape this very, very vivid truth. Well, what did Mark want to teach us about the kingdom of God? As we listen to Jesus' teaching, again, there are a number of things that, that, that are borne out by this. Well, firstly, now when we think about the kingdom of God, it's, it's kind of a foreign thing. I don't know. Does that, does that take you to, to some scene of, in um, um, uh, some movie somewhere about different kingdoms clashing and wars and, and so forth? Well, the kingdom of God, you can think about it this way, the rule of God or the reign of God. How exciting is that? Well, Jesus says it's very exciting. It's good news. In fact, chapter 1, verse 14 Jesus came preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. We sometimes think about good news as the gospel good news about forgiveness for sin. Well, yes, it is. Forgiveness for your sins will usher you into the kingdom where you can experience the beautiful, glorious, splendid, wonderful reign and rule of God. This is a God whose reign you want to sit under. Now, funny concept for us Australians, egalitarian as we are, we've got the privilege of, you know, perhaps growing up in lovely families and love, with lovely parents and, and well, by and large, regardless of your politics, federal, state, local, by and large, do you know what? We're pretty privileged to live in, in this sort of country and be brought up in the country we are. We, we have not really experienced bad totalitarian regimes and rule and so forth. So what's the big deal about being reigned over by, by some sort of benevolent dictator? 
Well, it's this. The reign of God is like nothing else you've ever experienced, which is why when it comes to the kingdom of God, what did Mark want to teach us? He has to use parables because it's like nothing else you've ever experienced. The rule of God, the reign of God, it's something you want to come under. You want to come under the reign of God. It's amazing. It's like nothing else. Let me explain it to you. Ah, of course, you have no experience in this. Let me use a parable, Jesus says. And so the kingdom of God is explained to us in parables. It's like it's like nothing else. It's powerful. All through Mark, we see, firstly, Jesus has, he has power over demons. He has power over illness and sickness. He, he, has, he has power over nature. He has power over sin. He has, he has power over, over all things. Um, the reign of God is a powerful reign. It can overcome absolutely any obstacle. You throw up anything that you want and say, this is, a, this is a problem for me. The truth is, under the reign of God, there is a solution to it. It is all-powerful. It can overcome absolutely any obstacle. Here's an unsettling truth. The reign of God is also disruptive. It will disrupt your peace. It will disrupt your life. It's the peace that isn't really peace, but in the very, very best way possible. In other words, where the rule of God or the reign of God is invited, it will turn things absolutely upside down. And so sometimes I think, you know, perhaps, um, uh, perhaps we're responsible as, as pastors and preachers. We, we don't tell you this enough, but follow Jesus and he will turn your life upside down. I don't know, it doesn't always sound appealing, does it? But in the very best way possible. In other words, he will, he will look at your life, he'll say, you, you, you've been made for so much more, let me help you by turning your life upside down. So Jesus will not leave anything unturned that needs to be turned over. The kingdom of God is disruptive. In fact, Jesus, as he taught on the kingdom and as he walked this earth, it was so disruptive that the Pharisees came away to plot on how they were going to kill him. There's only one way to deal with Jesus. There's only one way to deal with this, this reign of God, this rule of God that is intervening into the world affairs and turning everything upside down and ruining everything is by killing him. And so the plot was afoot. We see that the kingdom of God is like nothing else. It has to be explained in parables. The kingdom of God is powerful. The kingdom of God is disruptive, and yet it's also loving. God will, will only disrupt your, your life because he absolutely loves you. He adores you, and he wants the best for you. And if you will allow him, as his rule and his reign comes to, comes to do that welcome invasion, which we greet it with, you will find that it will enter in and turn your life upside down in the most loving fashion possible. It really is a welcome invasion, the reign and the rule of, of God. But it must be received like a child. We're also taught that about the kingdom. Like children, we must, we must say, I, I accept whatever you say, God. Um, now, how do we do that when we're, when we're stubborn adults stuck in our ways? It seems impossible, doesn't it? And so Jesus says to the rich man, um, yes, but all things are possible for God. If you will allow God, he will find a way. And then the last thing that Jesus teaches us um, about the kingdom of God, and we see much of this unfolding in chapter 13, is that he's coming back for us. 
He's coming back and his reign is eternal. So you can know two things because he's coming back. You can, you can know, firstly, well, I better be ready. I better be ready for the return of God. But secondly, I can be at peace. He's going to come back for all those who are his own. And guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, he's going to take you home. And he will get you there. He will. He can do it. So Jesus is coming back. We learned that about his, his kingdom as well. What did Mark lastly teach us about being a disciple? A disciple is, is many things. In chapter 1, a disciple is somebody who repents and believes. Um, in chapter 3, there's this, there's this incident where outside a particular house, Jesus is mother and brothers are gathered and the talk, the whispers are, I think he's finally gone too far, maybe a little mad. This is reported to Jesus and Jesus simply says, do you know who my mothers and my brother or mother and my brothers really are? My mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God. In other words, no familial tie will get you into the kingdom of God. A disciple of Jesus is somebody who repents and believes, and a disciple of Jesus is somebody who always says yes to God. A disciple is someone who obeys God in every single detail of their life. A disciple is somebody who might not get it all right, but is committed to a trajectory where they are essentially, I want to say yes to everything you ask of me, God, in every area of my life, and, and there is to be no stone unturned. A disciple is someone we read in chapter 7 after a huge debate with the Pharisees about outward rituals and so forth, and Ollie mentioned that just before. A disciple is someone who understands it's from the inside out, not the outside in. It's not the outward behaviour that makes you a disciple. No, that makes you a Pharisee. It's the inner heart change that makes you a disciple, which leads to outward behaviour. In chapter 10, we read after the encounter with James and John sort of, you know, kind of jostling for position at the right and the left of God. Jesus goes on and he says, you know, it's not for me to give you those positions. Here's something you need to understand. To be my disciple is to be a servant of all. Even I am a servant of all. Discipleship means to serve others. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 12, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, of course, a well-known verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So a disciple is somebody who repents and believes. A disciple is somebody who always says yes. A disciple is someone who, who understands and embraces inner change, who daily denies themselves, takes up their cross and follows Jesus, who is committed to serving others and loves others as well. And, and now have we just compiled an impossible list have we just created another religion, a new behavioural code? Have we just created something that you can never actually live up to? Well, here's the, here's the last part of this. And if it seems like I've been rushing, I have a little bit because I wanted to get to this. What did Jesus do throughout the Gospels? Yes, he modelled all of this for us. He modelled what it means to be 
a disciple by all means, but he did so much more than that. We have our vision statement as abiding disciples of Jesus Christ. We desire to live fruitful lives so our God is really is seen for who he really is. We, we know, work it backwards, we don't have to strive to ensure that God is glorified. He'll be glorified when the world sees fruit. We don't have to strive to, to produce fruit. Fruit will come as we abide in him. So the key seems to come back to that first word, abide. But then do you, do you sometimes, along with me, struggle with that? Well, we could, we could switch it. Both English words, remain or abide, they, they work. They, they fit the Greek. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Abide in me and I will abide in you. But do you sometimes just, just get caught on that word, abide, and think, yeah, but practically speaking, what does that mean? What, what does it mean day by day to be an abiding disciple? It's critical because that will lead to fruit, which will lead to glory. I got it. But day by day, what do I do with that word? This is the crux of the matter. And this is what we get from the Gospel of Mark. What did Jesus model for us? Did he simply model a new conduct? Here is a new and supremely elevated conduct that you must now fulfill, a righteousness that far surpasses that of the Pharisees, etc. Then are we any different to any other religious code? Because there have been many books written by very religious people about very religious matters, which will give us a very religious life if we can religiously follow it. Like how then is the gospel that good news? Isn't it just another layer of, of law and, 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 and impossible, impossible expectations from a, from a supreme being placed upon a fallen humanity? The answer is no, of course. Did Jesus just model for us new conduct? No. This is what I believe Jesus has modeled for us. Sonship. Sonship. He did not model for us a new conduct. He modeled for us a new self. I said this morning, if Mark was using a pen and he only had that much ink, just that much ink, and could only pen one verse, the thing he had to write, you could go with many things. What would I go with? Hmm. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit inspired him, so this is just Stuart. Okay, this is kind of off record. But I'm going to go with chapter 1, verse 11. The record of his father at his baptism. You are my son, in whom I am so pleased. If Mark could just get one verse onto the papyrus... If you could just get one verse down, what, what would it have been? I reckon you'd be hard to go beyond that. Sonship. Because Mark wants us to know, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus knew it, and he wants us to know it. And that's the key. This is what Jesus knew about himself. He knew he was the Son of God. His identity was absolutely secure. He could, he could encounter anything. And 
all manner of things were thrown at him, but he knew who he was. He did not just model for us a new behavioral code, a new conduct. He modeled for us a new self. This is my son. Jesus modeled sonship. For those of you who aren't men, daughtership. The kindred spirit that tells you your family. Um, way back in my... Um, when I was serving on the, the Dulos OM ship, the Dulos, we had a guest speaker come. His name was Charles Price, a noted author and speaker. Um, he is the principal of Cape and Ray, a Bible college in the UK. Charles had written a number of books, and I remember him, you know, just a penny dropping for me as I was listening to him. He noted that the words following Jesus drop off after the Gospels. That language seems to disappear. After the Gospels, Following Jesus just, just kind of disappears. After that, the, the language that is, that is picked up is, is different. It's the language that explains what has happened by people who have been touched by the Spirit of God at Pentecost. They are now described not as followers of Jesus, but people who are in Christ and Christ is in him. We often say this at a baptism, that that yes, the, the going under the water means dead to self, the rising up means alive with Christ, but the dipping in, as those doing the baptism class would know, the dipping in, literally, which is what the word baptize means, to dip, it's, you know, you do it at parties all the time, take a cracker, take a, some avocado, dip, you baptize the cracker, like it's not complicated. So you get dipped into, what on this occasion, water, what does the water symbolize? God, dipped into God. Let's take a... Um, you say a dry old sponge like we used to use when we washed cars. You dip it into the water, squish it around so it's really, really, really saturated and, and bring, it, bring it up all dripping wet. You could ask the question, well, I don't know, is, is the sponge in the water or is the water in the sponge? Both are true. And so Paul has no problem whatsoever switching between the language, is Christ in you or you in Christ? Both are true, absolutely true. And that's why when we baptise you, and depending who happens to do it, it could be any one of the pastoral team, we get you really, really, really wet so that you, you, you feel like I'm, oh, I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Now, it's water. It's water. There's no holy water, nothing like that. But you get the picture. The language after the gospel is, is about being in Christ and, and Christ being in you. We sometimes use as a working definition of a disciple, one who follows Jesus and discipleship is taking others to the one you're following. Perhaps, perhaps just to be more technically correct, I, I should add, we follow the ways of Jesus. It's not like if you, if you want to picture this in terms of proximity, Jesus is there, we're here, he's walking, oh, I hope I can walk the same path that you are. It's, it's not the picture. That's not the way the New Testament leaves us. It's Jesus in us that is actually walking out his ways. He didn't leave us with a new code of conduct. He left us with a new self. Dallas Willard, a well-known well -known author on all matters discipleship, once said, a disciple is what we look like uh, what we would look like if Jesus wore our shoes. Now, 
Dallas is a noted author and he's well published and so forth, so far be it from me to correct him. But I will because he's gone to heaven at the moment and, and, and so, well, I don't quite know how that works, but um, I know he's not, going to, he's not going to write and tell me off. Um, but I would say, instead of saying a disciple is what we would look like if Jesus filled our shoes, I would say a disciple, no, 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 no. A disciple is what we would look like as we realise Jesus is in our shoes. He does fill our shoes. It's what we look like the more we realise he is in our shoes. We have been dipped into Christ. Christ lives within us. I've, I've done this um, a couple of times. I've sometimes, sometimes said, and oh, let me do it again. For, let, let me do it again real quick. If you know it, you'll know where I'm going with this. If you don't, you'll soon get it. We've got, we've got time. Close your eyes for a moment. No tricks, it's all right. Won't run away. Just close your eyes for a moment. Now, turn your attention to Jesus. It's always a good space to be, isn't it? Turn your attention to Jesus. Okay, you can open your eyes again. When I said turn your attention to Jesus... Did you in your headspace look up or look in? Did you look up or did you look in? Because correctly, good, good for you, Sarah. Because to be correct, by his spirit, Jesus now lives within and we are invited into a relationship where we understand that as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That it is Jesus who is walking out his life in us, not inviting us to take a walk. This is life with God. Um, perhaps I can put it, put it this way. And... Um, and because it's evening service and we're, we're a youthful bunch. Um, I was going to uh, give you a, a little bit of an illustration. I was just going to tell it, but we'll act it out instead. I need one, two, three volunteers. Okay, Sarah. Yeah, Jono, Roger. Oh, thank you. Your mum just volunteered you. <laughs> Yeah, going up. All right. Um, who'd like to play God? Go. Oh, you were first. Okay, Jono, up here. <laughs> okay, you can you can stand you can stand here. Just have a very fatherly look on your face. <laughs> really, that's what father looks like. Okay, okay. awesome. Um, who'd like to play Jesus? Sarah. Beat you to it, Roger. Okay, so Sarah, you can just come over to stage left for, for, the, for the moment. Okay, Roger, that leaves you to play Roger. Can you play Roger? Are you okay with that? All right, so, so Roger, 
Um, uh, you, can, you can come up and I'm just going to be the choreographer. I'm just going to be, you know. So whoop, whoop, watch that step. No, I have been all night, all night I have been thinking, I'm going to do that. You've done it for me. Um, so, so I'm good now. Okay, so here's, here's, here's Roger. He's in relationship with God, actually, <laughs> very literally. Um, but um, he's in relationship with God. Now, here's one role that I'm not getting anyone to play because it's just a nasty role, and that is of the, the slippery accuser. That we're just going to imagine. Oh, again, I'll just choreograph it. Here is Roger trying to live the life to which he's called. Um, here's Father God. Here's the slippery accuser that comes and, and every day, same agenda for Roger, exactly the same agenda. He looks up at Roger and he just throws accusation after accusation after accusation at him. That time you didn't wash the dishes. That, did that happen? It did? Really? Did I nail that? Oh, you did today. Okay. Whoa. Yes. But... But there was that time. And the slippery little accuser is kind of throwing them up at Roger all the time, all the time. And, um, and Roger is sometimes looking a little bit at God, just worried. He's got, got this constant attack coming at him. And here's the deal. Father is up here, and you have to just stand back just a little bit. And this is where enter Jesus. Sarah, would you mind? You come up here, and I want you to stand in between Roger and God. I want you to put your, put your, put your arms up, make a cross for you. Okay. And this is what God says. As, as Roger has questions in his mind, this slippery little accuser is kind of throwing up all these accusations. And, and what, does, what does God say? See, he only sees Jesus. And as, as Roger turns around with a big question mark, and, you know, oh, this is what I'm hearing moment after moment after moment. I mean, this is just coming. Darts are flying at me. And I'm just scared that my armor won't, you know, my armor's just not going to hold. All these accusations coming at you. But what you need to hear is the voice of your father who says, hey, Roger, I only see Jesus. I only see Jesus. You need to hear that moment after moment after moment. And here's the thing. That's where that skit ended sort of thing. It was, it's played out in an elongated fashion and all sorts, of, all sorts of accusations are thrown up about every single matter you can possibly think about. And, and, and for most of the time, God is silent and, and then in a dramatic moment says, I only see Jesus. But here's where I want to take the skit one more level. What do you see? Because that's the important question. It's, it is great to hear the words of our Heavenly Father, I only see Jesus. Great. What do you see? What do I see? What is it that we each see? Because Jesus came not to just model a new code of conduct, a new way. He came to model a new self. This is what it means to walk on earth as you are known in heaven. Jesus knew who he was. He had his identity nailed down. He did not need to go onto social media and get liked. Cool, huh? Imagine that. 
Now, I'm a culprit there. I have an eBay account, and my rating's pretty high, and I'm proud of that. That's about it. Um, but, but my identity is far more secure than that. And we need to know who we are in Jesus Christ. So when I come back to the question, that's what God sees. What do you see? Where are you looking? Where's the focus of your attention any given day? And so, Roger, what, what, you, I, what we need to do is just kind of say, you know what? This will do my head in. I need to come and I need to, excuse me, I need to see things from my father's perspective. Now, what do you see, Roger? The back of my head. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, Jesus. I, yeah, I only see Jesus. I only see Jesus. That's the view that we need to have as well. Give these guys a round of applause. Thank you. They weren't hard roles to play, were they? But you did that so well and very spontaneous and very trusting of you. Thank you. We finish up this series in Mark with this question, what do you see? Because that's at the heart of discipleship. What do you see? The best suit that I have ever had is one I can't wear now, legally. Um, when I was in the police academy, you know, imagine 18, 19-year-old, whatever I was. It's a long time ago. But a tailor was measuring me up for my, for my uniform, my tunic. I mean, whoa, a proper tailor. I'd never had a tailor. I mean, I always bought stuff off the rack. Kmart or whatever. Like, like this was so cool. Every now and again, I got something from a surf shop that was, that was fun but expensive. Surf shop, what is it? We've, anyway, so this tailor is kind of measuring me up and, and, you know, we had three fittings. I remember the first time putting it on, it didn't have any sleeves on. It kind of looked a bit dorky and so forth. But by the third fitting, it's all starting to take shape. They've just got to put the silver buttons on and the patches and so forth. And, and I remember at the academy, picking up my new uniform in, you know, all wrapped in plastic and taking it back to my room. Unfortunately, they said you could try it on because we we're all going to take it back to our room and try it on anyway. And so you can, you can try it on. And I, I remember just, just putting, putting on the, the slacks and they, they were cool. Like you kind of think, well, how cool can slacks be, right? So you had front pockets, back pockets, but you had a batten pocket secret kind of rent down your leg there and, and you'd have your baton strap there and you could pull that out and swing it like that. It was really cool. But anyway, so they're just the slacks, the secret pockets in the coat and stuff like that. Like the tunic, it was, ah, oh, so cool. And I remember looking in the mirror thinking, wow, I'm a policeman. Almost. I've got to graduate tomorrow. Until I'm sworn in, officially I can't wear this uniform. So I was pretty excited the next day to, to actually have the parade, have the ceremony, and finally get sworn in as a police officer. And as a sworn-in constable of police, I was able to actually wear that, that uniform legally. And it was such a good fit, the best-fitting jacket I'd ever have. In those days, I was a little trimmer, and, you know. Anyway, I fitted out the jacket a bit nicer. But, but it was kind of, it was the... It was, wow. And, and when you put that on, I did stand just a little bit differently. 
it, it kind of came, came with it, came with the fact that I am a sworn officer of Victoria Police. And, and the uniform simply signifies that, that fact. Um, there is a far cooler uniform and a far cooler jacket that you and I are invited to, to wear. And I would, that, that, as, as nice as it was, as, as impressed as I was as a young man to wear it, um, and it was a privilege to wear it, I'd ditch it any day for the one that God has now given me. And it was the righteousness of God. In Colossians, Paul says, clothe yourself with Jesus Christ. Abiding in Christ means every single day choosing to clothe yourself in Jesus Christ. Being crucified with Christ is no longer I who lives, but Christ Jesus who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Every day, putting on the right coat. You could put on the accuser's coat. You could put on a coat of pride and self-justification in your own making, or you can choose to put on Jesus Christ. Every day, you have to put on the coat that fits your new identity. You are a sworn-in child of God, so wear the coat. Every day, you choose to wear the coat. You choose to wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You choose to wear sonship, daughtership. You choose to be identified as a child of God, which is the game changer. Everything is different. That's what it means to abide in Jesus Christ. You are choosing to see things from Father's perspective. Father says, I only see Jesus. What do you see? It's choosing to say there's only one perspective here that counts. It's the perspective of my loving Father, God. I choose that code. I choose that code. Mark invites us to understand how did Jesus walk on earth? He walked on earth as he was known in heaven. He knew he was the Son of God. And he could face whatever this earth threw at him because he knew who he was. His identity was absolutely secure. What does he leave us with? Just a new code of conduct? How to be a good disciple? No. He will walk that out through you and I. He lives within. He gives us a new self. He gives you a new identity. It's the most critical thing that you can, you can pack away in the foundations of your theology. Who you are in Jesus Christ. He's invited you to enter in that. He's invited you to be absolutely free every day to abide in him, to put on that new reality, that truth of what the Father sees. The thing about what, it, what you see is it's entirely irrelevant, except to how you are going to walk out the next day. We are invited to choose carefully every day the coat we wear. What do you see? Which coat will you wear? Jesus, 
Thank you for each one of my precious brothers and sisters here tonight. You died for each and every one of them. You have given us your spirit. Everything is different now. Everything is different. We finish this series in, in Mark, understanding this about you, Jesus. Indeed, you were the Son of God, and you knew who you were. We want our walk on earth to reflect who we are in heaven. What others think about us, even the, the confused thoughts that we have about ourselves at times are totally irrelevant now. Our broken past is just that. It's past. It's behind us. A bright future filled with you is before us and we want to enter into that. Help us to walk on earth as we are known in heaven. Help us to see things from your perspective. Help us to see, Father, what you see and what you see alone. We want to say yes and amen to all of your declarations over us. We choose to wear the coat that you have fashioned for us, beautifully tailored, a perfect fit, splendid, righteous, befitting for any child of God. Would you stand with me now? We, we are going to sing in just a moment. I want you to stand. And again, just as we're praying and finishing up, you're very just standing there is entering into or can be, if you choose it, Symbolic of entering into the right standing that we now have with God through Jesus Christ. As I said, you're now a child, born again of the Spirit. Everything's different. You have right standing with God. And us standing in this moment to, to sing out praise and declarations. It's a physical move that that demonstrates that inner reality. I am standing right now because I have right standing with my Heavenly Father. Choosing to wear the coat. Jesus, thank you for leading us. Thank you for, for this wonderful gospel and thank you for everything that has been teaching us. May we prove... power of being an abiding disciple as day by day we put on your coat, clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ that's our desire, that's our passion to see what you see thank you Jesus Amen <laughs>